Hi everyone. Um, I'm Kat. I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you guys for holding the meeting um, and welcome to the newcomers. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, so it's hard for me to talk for 10 minutes. I like to talk for a long time. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, I guess the main thing that I want to say is that I'm an alcoholic and AA has, I don't want to say helped me recover, but the reason that I've been able to recover from alcoholism is 100% because of AA. Um, you know, I got a sponsor. Um, it took me a while to get a sponsor because I was afraid of people, but, um, you know, I got a sponsor in my first six months. <laughs> it took me a while. It took me a while, while, like I was really shopping. Like I was like, um, but you know, I found someone who kind of had what I wanted. She had long hair and high heels and <laughs> a car <laughs> and, um, you know, so eventually I asked her to sponsor me, but actually I didn't really ask her. I, someone was like, do you have a sponsor yet? And I was like, I was thinking of asking this woman, but I don't know. And then they just marched me over there and they were like, Kat was going to ask you to sponsor her. Cause they were actually shocked that I hadn't had a sponsor the whole time that I was sober yet. So anyway, so, um, yeah, I started working the steps with her and, you know, um, when I was new, I was really afraid of God and religion. I always thought that, and, you know, I kind of worked it out, you know, in my step work, like the reasons why I had such problems with God and um, different beliefs. And it's because I guess I felt that the people who were practicing the religions that I was familiar with kind of used the religions as a way to control and I didn't like that. I didn't like to be under control. Like, I'm an alcoholic. Like, good luck trying to control me. Like, you know, like, you got a tiger by the tail if you're trying to control me. So, um, so through AA, I'm really grateful that the program as part of the prescription um, allows you to choose your own conception of God, um, which is what I've done as I've gotten sober. Um, you know, I've... Um, it's expanded very far. Um, and, um, yeah, I, you know, I've gone through all the steps, um, and my life has totally changed. You know, I have sponsees now they're, you know, plugging along with their steps and like, it's just really beautiful to be able to, and you know, people that I don't sponsor, you know, I see people walk into the rooms and they're like, um, confused and frightened like I was when I was new. And then their lights start coming on, you know, as they start going through the process, you know. Um, and the process of inventory and, like, just breaking up all these old ideas is, um, you know, that's what the spiritual experience is, um, you know. And... You know, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in a 
in a really alcoholic home. My mom was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic and meth addict. Um, both of their fathers before them were alcoholics, both named Bob. My mom's dad's name was Bob. My dad's dad's name was Bob. My mom's mom's name was Nancy. My dad's mom's name was Nancy. Bob and Nancy, both sides, both alcoholics. Um, and it, and all the way down, alcoholics all the way down, you know, and I know that that's not everybody's experience, like with the alcoholism thing, but, um, you know, in my case, the dysfunction of my family um, has been passed down for generations, you know, like, um, and uh, through this program, I've actually been able to break the cycle, you know, so far, you know, I don't speak for tomorrow, um, but... I do know what I have today, and that is a literal miracle of life. Um, you know, I'm able to experience the world, experience pain um, in ways that I had not been able to do before. You know, when I was mentioning my family, like, the strategy for living that was passed down in my family was pain avoidance. My mom taught me how to avoid pain. I avoid pain. Um, still to this day, you know, I, I seek, you know, to escape occasionally, but when I catch myself doing it, you know, I, um, I always come back to the, to the higher power, um, because that's where my peace of mind comes from these days. Um, but yeah, um, I had a really violent and crazy upbringing and, uh, you know, I never really had tools to deal with life until now. And, the great thing about the spiritual aspect of this thing is that it is all expansive. It is infinitely expansive. Whereas before when I was drinking, my life was, I was infinitely expanding the amount of alcohol and substances that I wanted to take. And you can only take so much before, you know, it stops working or you die. So I was on the path of, um, you know, there, I, I was on, there was, I didn't want anybody to put limits on anything I was doing ever in any sense. I could not have limitations on my behavior. Um, and you know, these days I have, a um, you know, I <laughs> kind of, uh, I think I live in a more measured way. I'm still, I can still be extreme though, but it's not like, I can see that about myself and I can laugh at myself. Whereas before I was just flying blind, trying to get more and more and more all the time. Um, so um, I'm not really sure what else to say about it um, other than, you know, Basically, through doing all the inventory and doing amends and working with other people, I just realized that what is going on in my mind is not reality. What I think is going to happen is not reality. It is amazing. When I actually, you know, I had these amends that I had to do, you know, this particular woman, you know, I thought it was just going to go horrible, you know, or like, I don't know what it was going to go like, but I didn't want to do it, basically. And she really surprised me and it's kind of been like that with every every single amends that I've done um I've uh I've really I've really been in awe of um reality versus my mind and the more I do this thing the more I pay attention 
to what's going on in my mind versus what's going on in reality, the more um, the more I'm convinced that this is this is the way um, that I want to live. So um, I'm not really sure what else to say. You know, I've had a lot of experiences in sobriety. I've had grief. You know, my 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 relationship with my mother has changed actually too. Like yesterday, I was on the phone with her. And she's been going through some stuff like my uncle died and uh, I grew up with him and we all lived in the same house for many years and he just died recently and my mom is taking it really hard. Um, But she's also kind of not, you know, she's kind of hanging in there too. You know, she's not drinking and she's, um, she's taking care of her mental health. But anyway, we had kind of a scuffle over the phone. She said, I was, she asked me a question and then I answered her question. And then she said to me, well, you don't need to give me so many details. I don't want to hear all these details. <laughs> and that really upset me. Like, I realized that it had got, like, it just, it hit a snag in me. I was just like, mom, I really don't appreciate that, blah, blah, blah. And I need to get off the phone with you, you know. But then today, so that was yesterday. And then today I was able to call her and kind of make amends for the situation. You know, I just said, I recognize that she's going through something and, um, and that I don't need to react so hard. It was just so weird. Like being able to see the humanity in her and how she's, it's not personal. She's not trying to personally hurt me. Like she's just in pain. That is a different reaction. I thought, I don't know, like before I would have just been like drinking over that for weeks. So, And I'm just totally amazed at myself. I didn't even do that myself either. It had to come from a higher power. So anyway, I hope that I said something that was helpful. I know I didn't talk much about my drinking, but hopefully the main speaker will. Well, I don't know what he'll talk about. I don't want to assume. But um, anyway, thank you guys for um, having the meeting. And this meeting is uh, really good. And so thanks a lot. Hi, I'm Howard. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks, everybody. I'll uh, get right to, uh, usually I get right to what I was, uh, I spend not too long on the drinking time and get right to what what happened after I got sober and the process of getting sober. But since I got a little extra minute today, real quick, I was born... (laughs) I'm always scared when somebody starts off with it, telling me when they're where they were born. So I'm not going to do that. But I was a kid uh, in a religious family uh, that went to church all the time and hauled all of us to church. And I didn't buy it, but I didn't say so because I didn't want to cause a giant uproar and be in trouble the rest of my life. So I pretended then. I did the act as if I can't remember ever actually believing what they were doing, going to church on Sunday. And my father would have liked to have been a preacher, but he stuttered really bad. So he couldn't get away with that. And he wanted me to be one that didn't work out either. And so uh, anyway, so when I got to be a teenager, I, I would, by then I'd already, been acting out for a period of time 
uh, I didn't really like going along with the program. About the third grade, I stopped doing homework in school. That made it difficult to graduate from high school, but I managed to squeak it out with D minuses a lot. But anyway, uh, but that was not a, uh, it was, I don't know if it was more rebellion or laziness. I just did not want to give them my time, which was not at school. I felt my time away from school was not there. So I wasn't doing homework. So that's the kind of a rotten kid I was. And uh, the, uh, in high school, I remember early and one of the older kids and who asked his buddy about, hey, I saw your car out in the orchard. What happened? And he, the guy says, oh, I was drunk. And then the other guy, oh, oh, and they laughed about it. And, went, and I went, wow, what a wonderful excuse. You can do something really dumb and it's totally acceptable if you were drunk at the time. And I hadn't had a chance to be drunk yet. So I was looking forward to that. And uh, of course, that that soon came. But uh, my early drinking was limited by uh, the ability to purchase alcohol and not being old enough to go buy it and having to get someone to do it. And uh, in the school I went to, there was uh, there was no, uh, I didn't see if there were any any drugs that were going around, I did not find out about them. And I hung out with mostly uh, whatever kids were acting out a little bit. We were smoking cigarettes about 12 years old out in the orchard behind the school. But but I didn't hear about anything else. So, but I heard about alcohol. I lived in a dry county in the middle of Oklahoma. And there was a Family. I have three siblings, all sisters, and so we. The uh, there was no bars, and there was uh, no place you could go to the next county to buy beer, what or other to buy alcohol, whiskey, and everything. Because a guy that worked for my dad did that. Worked on our farm, did that. So that was the one guy I got to see drinking. So I I don't know why I was fascinated with getting the drinking. But part of it, I believe, was peer pressure. Once my <laughs> teenage friends started with the alcohol, I was on board. And uh, that was the way the cigarettes deal worked, too. That was a dumb thing. The stupid tobacco. There's no entertainment in that. I've always been mad about that. All I got was a stupid habit. And luckily, I was able to quit when, after about 20 years of smoking. I finally quit that. I quit it cold turkey on a bet. So that was a that was a good thing. And I remembered the date. And about 11 years later, alcohol finally got bad enough. I needed to quit that, too. After quitting, I quit cigarettes while I was still drinking, which is I don't always get things in order. So excuse my misbehavior there. But uh, anyway, the. Uh, there was plenty of indications early on for many years that I needed to stop, but I, I didn't get stopped till I was, I'd been drinking about 30 years before I got stopped. But uh, early on, I noticed that if I drank too much, then I had, I had behavior and, and uh, didn't feel well the next day, had a hangover. 
And so I wanted to regulate how much I was drinking. And so uh, I, when I was putting my order in to the guy who was going to go buy the beer, I only ordered so much so that I would run out before I had too much to drink. That's the last time I did that. I never did that again because I didn't like running out a whole lot worse than I didn't like getting out of control. So I, I, after that, I always wanted to be sure I had all, I had a plentiful supply. So in, as the years went by, if you came over and helped me drink, we're not going to run out today, maybe tomorrow, but not today. <laughs> so anyway, I always kept a supply after that if I could. It was difficult at times, but uh, I, I tried to maintain a job because I couldn't figure out how I could afford to drink if I didn't have a job. I had some jobs that weren't too wonderful, but I, I kept jobs. And uh, one of the jobs I got in the, how I got to the Bay Area from, uh, oh, my family moved to the Central Valley in the 50s, so I went to high school there and stuff. But uh, any, and, and then I moved here in the early 60s because I got a job at the Chevron refinery over here near the San Rafael Bridge. And uh, I worked there about five years before my drinking and the rotating shift work got to be too hard to handle and I quit. And so I was uh, drinking pretty alcoholically by then because I would get off of my sh graveyard shift and go to the bar at 6 a.m., when it opened <laughs> and well it's my evening i just got off work <laughs> so that was uh i was already had that attitude and i i would i found out i like going to the dive bars and uh the uh the dive bars were uh uh there were some pretty good ones around the area and some real real hole in the wall places and the hole in the wall places were uh I got so I liked those better than the more upstanding places. So the first place I had a bar tab, I would I want I just I'd heard of people have put it on my tab. I wanted to have a bar tab. So this real dumpy place, I established a bar tab. And then the first week after I had to come in and pay for the drinking, I drank the weekend over the weekend and it was seemed like more than i thought it should be and i decided at that point i no longer want so i paid my bar tab and i never ran up another one <laughs> that was the end of my bar tab i didn't like paying for what i couldn't remember so that was a short experiment it was a fortunate one too because it would have been unfortunate for me to have a bar tab so that went on. Anyway, I uh, left that job and I went to working as a mechanic. And uh, I worked as a mechanic for a lot of years. And uh, like I said, I had 30 years to pick from here. So I'm going to shoot right through this. I'll bring up a couple of serious incidents and minor, not so serious ones. One of the, uh, one of the things I did find, I had an occasional blackout, not a regular one, but in a very occasional one. And uh, the uh, one of the blackouts, a friend of mine had built a boat out at the coast, and I was out there. 
the day it was going to be launched. And uh, I started drinking early in the day because I was just there to watch the boat go in the water. It was a pretty large boat. And uh, so there was a lot of people and there was a lot of struggle with the boat and it fell off the skids and this and that. It was a concrete boat, one of those ferro cement boats. And so I was drinking all this time. About three in the afternoon, the boat finally got in the water. And a friend said, uh, hey, I got this new, mo uh, new big touring Honda motorcycle. You want to ride it? And I said, sure. And I'm, he doesn't know that I've been drinking steady from about nine in the morning. People do some stupid fucking shit that involves breaking the fucking law. Other black motherfuckers. Somebody got a handle on the cancel on that guy okay sorry about that uh, i'll go ahead from there anyway so i took his motorcycle down highway one uh with someone's wife as a passenger whom i had just seen that met that day who wanted to go i think she had been drinking also anyway i crashed that motorcycle and i woke up in petaluma in the hospital and i found out the lady had a broken wrist i think who was my passenger and I was torn up so much that uh, they couldn't sew me up at Petaluma. And a police officer came and interviewed me. And uh, I had been a while since I'd, uh, and I had put on a good enough spiel that uh, he did not write me up or ask for a blood sample or anything. And he didn't write me up for a DUI, he wrote me up for didn't write me up for anything, called it an accident and went on his way. And uh, so I escaped that one without a DUI. But anyway, I, uh, they couldn't sew up my face at, uh, at the hospital. They had to send me to Santa Rosa and they were going to send me by ambulance. And my other friend, he's there. And he said, uh, well, I can drive them up and save the ambulance. We'll get right up there. So, okay. So they let us do that. And I tried to get them to stop at a bar on the way. And I, I was not recognizable. I had so much, my face had hit the pavement and I had, uh, one eye was like closed and this and that. It, and I was ground meat across my face and my eyelid was torn off and stuff. And uh, so I wanted to stop at a bar, but he wouldn't let me do it. But he did have a cooler in the car. So I had a couple more beers on the way to the, from the first hospital to the, I wasn't finished yet. So I was still drinking on the way to the be sewed up at the next hospital. So that's when I was on a run on a, on one of those kind of drinking things, that's the way I was. I didn't see, I had to have something else stop me besides myself. I, I didn't have a stop. I had to run out of money, run out of something to drink. Uh, the bars closed, get locked up, pass out or something. I had to stop somehow other than me. Now, that didn't happen every time I drank. It happened every whenever. And I noticed toward the end of my drinking, it was happening. Those binges were getting closer together. And at the DUI school, uh, some a year, a few years later, they were interviewing uh, different people in the DUI school about what kind of drinker you were, a maintenance drinker or a binge drinker. And I figured out from... Uh, uh, the, the way, description of the way they described those that I was a maintenance drinker in between binges. And as I was getting toward the end of my drinking, the binges were happening closer together and the effects were worse. And sometimes the binges lasted longer. 
if I could uh, maintain. But uh, anyway, so I'm going to get to get to the getting sober here pretty quick. And the uh, so this was that was one of those incidents that just was an example of my not wanting to stop. And uh, I had one other inter, uh, in thing that came up as uh, as good alcoholic thinking, and it was about. Uh, when I had quit smoking cigarettes, I had made a bet with somebody about whoever smoked first lost the bet. So I got by okay the first few days, and it was a cold turkey with a set deadline, November midnight, November 22nd, 1977. That was my last cigarette. And so I that, that Friday, I went to the bar and with some other people, and I'm in the bar, and I'm not, I can't light up. You could smoke in bars back then. I can't light up, so I'm tipping them up faster than usual, and I drank myself into a blackout. And the next day, I'm home, and nothing unusual about that, except I don't know if I lost the bet or not. I had to ask people if I smoked or not, and they said, no, you didn't smoke, but you wouldn't shut up. Okay. So I good alcoholic thinking was, I assumed from that, that it was perfectly all right to be in a blackout if I had that much control over my life while in a blackout that I could not smoke cigarettes on the bed right through the blackout, then no problem with blackouts. So I didn't worry about blackouts so much after that. Uh, so it, it took a few more things. Uh, about 10 years later, 11 years later after that, I finally got my second DUI. And I was about to lose the best job I had had in many years. I had gotten a maintenance job with the city that I uh, and uh, in Marin County, and I was going to lose that job if I lost my driver's license. So I was. That was my uh, life was unmanageable moment. That was my step one. I was powerless over alcohol, and my life was unmanageable because they were going to. I was going to lose the best job I'd had. And I was, it passed, I was 46. I did not want to be hunting again for a decent job, especially after losing one. And uh, I wanted to keep this job. So I did all the things they wanted me to do. Go to, go to DUI school, go get insurance. You know, I, got, I was able to keep a restricted driver's license. And my attorney said, uh, well, if you're not drinking, take this paper and go to AA meetings and get signatures, and it'll really court and got sentenced to AA. My lawyer talked me into it. My friends recommended this lawyer. I didn't know it, but he was a sober alcoholic. And so that's how come he had me going to AA meetings, getting signatures, and I hadn't even gone to court yet. I thought it was like part of the punishment, I, I had the, like the fine and the, the lawyer fees and the insurance stuff I had to get and all the stuff. I thought that's what I was getting here. But it wasn't. He really wanted me to get sober and be a sober alcoholic. So I had been quite knuckling it for a week or two here and there, ever since that DUI before I went to court and before I went to the AA meetings. And after, when I went to that first AA meeting, uh, here was people, I heard the, the speaker and uh, 
I, I don't know how I drank for 30 years and didn't know anything about AA other than the name. And it was something to do with uh, alcoholics. And uh, I didn't even have a good definition of what an alcoholic really was. So I get to the meeting and the guy, I liked what he had to say. And they get to the end of the meeting and they stood in a circle and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And I went, oh, here we go again. That's like my family of stuff. So anyway, I said, that's okay. I can act as if on that. I always have when they're saying a player prayer, I'm thinking of whatever and, uh, checking out what women are in the room and stuff. I'm not, uh, it wasn't, uh, but I knew the words. So we said the prayer. So I came back next week. I thought it was like church once a week. And I, and the next week, uh, pretty interesting speaker again. And some of the same people were there and I heard some more talk about different things. And it seemed like some of these people were pretty okay. And they had been staying sober for a long time. And then, uh, by the third week, I come back for another signature and, uh, somebody's at the beginning of the meeting, they asked, about who'd been anybody have a birthday and somebody said celebrated a year and everybody clapped and i thought wow i haven't drank in a month or so i could maybe stay sober a year i got 11 months to go and part of what encouraged me was that 11 years earlier when i had quit smoking cold turkey and choose chose a date and just made it an absolute policy of not none at all that that worked. I was able to do it from then. And it's, that was, uh, in 77, I still am cigarette since then. So, so far so good. So I had that, I was encouraged by that because I had a little history with that quitting smoking. And I, I thought to myself, I got that, uh, part of the, uh, when we read how it works, it says, if you're willing to go to any length to get what we have, I was willing to go to any lengths to at least stay sober a year. <laughs> I wasn't uh, at the moment. I didn't keep that willingness, but I had it right then. And I made the decision right then to do this AA program, whatever it was. Now, I expected there was more to it than I had seen. I thought there would probably be some ex more major expense down the road. So far, they were passing a basket and people were putting a dollar in. In 1988, they mostly put in a dollar. And, uh, and so uh, I thought, well, they got to be getting more money than that somewhere. So I'll find out, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I did not know what else I would be required to do. I thought I might have to wear a suit and tie and go door to door with pamphlets and stuff. And I might have to go down to the bar and get my drunk friends and bring them down to AA. I was pretty sure there was more to it than met the eye. Little did I realize that they'd been reading it at every meeting when they read how it works. I did not think something that I could, could keep me sober could be so simple you could put it on a couple of pages. I just couldn't believe that. So I'm still expecting something to happen. But something did happen. I, uh, after that, uh, at that point, 
um, I went on about my usual behavior, hanging out with my drinking friends, going here and there. I did not, I was, I had selective hearing. I didn't hear about staying away from slippery places and I didn't, I, I didn't register on this and that. So that's not, uh, a lot of those things are, are really helpful. And in my case, I just didn't pay attention very well, like the kid in school. So I was at my friend's birthday party in a bar, and I had about 30 days, about a month, and a, maybe four or five weeks sober. And um, somebody bought a drink, put it in front of me, and I said, no, thanks, Jim, I'm not drinking. I absolutely did not have the power to do that the months before. I, that, I had gotten at that by that third meeting, when I made that decision to do this program, I didn't realize it then. I was doing a mini third step. I turned my will and my life over to this Alcoholics Anonymous program. And they talk about that in the book in several places about if you're not, if you don't have a, if you're agnostic and you don't have God, you can use the program itself or you can use the people in the program as a group. Uh, to for a higher power at least to start and that was fine and it was it worked fine for me i was able to stay sober then and i wasn't fighting with it that was the wonderful part when i quit cigarettes i really wanted to smoke bad for a week or two when i quit drinking after a day or two i didn't i didn't need to i didn't have any real problem with it but i knew that I would be drinking soon as the right situation came up, the right party, the right go to dinner with the right people, something would come up where be, I wouldn't be able to avoid drinking. I assumed that. Well, so far, hasn't happened yet. That was in 1988. So, so far, so good. And so uh, I went, uh, I, I was comfortable not, not drinking. And uh, that was the amazing part. And I, what I didn't realize at the moment, at that time, that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. And that is one of those things that relieved that first spiritual experience. That was remo removing that obsession. So I have to drink at the next time the opportunity presented itself. The hardest drink for me to turn down is one somebody else bought. And I got tested on that right away. So onward with staying, how do, I, how do I stay sober now that I got sober? Well, I wasn't going to stay sober. I was pretty new, and I hadn't really read the book yet. I've been to a few meetings, and I planned my first relapse because my birthday was coming up, and I figured I had to drink on my birthday. And my buddy's birthday was on the same day, and, and we were going at, uh, we were at the Sonoma Racetrack, and we're going to stay overnight, had my camper, had my cases of beer, had my sleeping bag in the camper. I was all set to have my relapse. But the Saturday before, Saturday night, while I was at the track during the races, a guy came up to me and said, hey, don't I know you from those meetings in Petaluma? And I was with my racing buddies. I didn't want to say, talk about AA there. So I said, huh, no, me, what? I pretended I didn't know him. And uh, didn't know anything about it. But I think that was a, enough of a reminder that when I went to go to my camp, oh, the weather turned cold. The party didn't materialize. I go to my camper that evening and I can say, well, now I can start drinking. Well, or not. So I didn't. 
And I gave that beer away. And so usually if an alcoholic buys his drinks for his relapse, he usually gets drunk. And I didn't. I didn't drink the drink. I, I, and I, I think a lot of it was that guy that walked up to me during the afternoon and reminded me that I'd started on this AA path. And uh, right in the middle of my plans for my next drunk. So, so far, that was my best effort at a relapse. And so far, that's been it. And so uh, let me get on with a little more of uh, what, what's, what's happened in the last 30-some years since I've been stopped drinking. Uh, I mainly came in to keep from getting fired from that job. And I believe I've gotten that because I retired from that job about 12 years ago. I don't think they can fire me now. So I got that part of it nailed. Does that mean I can have a drink? Probably not. And so uh, the other thing uh, I didn't, I had, I used a group for a higher power. And later, as during that first year someplace, my, uh, the prayers, I was just saying the words because I had it memorized, no problem. I, I got to the point that I sometimes said a prayer when I wasn't at the beginning or the ending of a meeting or at visiting my family and, and, and uh, going to church with them. I always, we had prayers there. I started so that a prayer, I felt like I had a higher power to pray to. I never had that before. I began to feel like I had that prayer meant something because I now had some place for the prayer to be directed. And, and previously I hadn't. So that is about, that was my slow educational development of a spiritual awakening, which they talk about in the book as separate from a spiritual experience. So then what other things happened while I'm sober? Um, there was a, First sponsor was a lady that kind of adopted me when, at the first few meetings I went to, and uh, that was not recommended way to go about that. But what she did accomplish, I did stay sober while I was hanging out with her, and then uh, I'd see her at meetings and which stuff, and we'd uh, then we got kind of in a relationship. Then we didn't. Then her uh, ex got out of rehab, so she went back to him. So that, but anyway, before she did. I still didn't have a real sponsor, and uh, we were at a meeting, and she chose a sponsor for me. And at the meeting, she asked that guy and elbowed me in the side and said, get that guy to be your sponsor. Well, I would have picked badly, and she chose very well for me to get a real sponsor. And so I was always grateful for that. And uh, years later, after he moved away, I, I got another sponsor. And I didn't pick so well that time. I, I got, they said, get a guy that has what you like. Well, he had a girlfriend I really liked. And that was probably not a good reason for choosing him. So I, uh, he, that didn't work out so well. I had to get somebody else a while later. But that first sponsor, um, while I'm on this topic of sponsoring, I had uh, a guy ask me to be his sponsor when I was about a year sober. And uh, I just... I took full responsibility for his sobriety at that point, and I panicked, and I called my sponsor, and I said, a guy asked me to be a sponsor. What am I going to do? And Ray said to me, well, there's probably nothing you can say 
that will keep him sober if he's not ready. And there's probably nothing you can say that'll cause him to drink if he is ready. So go ahead and tell him how it worked for you and carry them. Your job is carry the message and it's up to him and his God if he stays sober or not. And I said, on that basis, I can go ahead and do it. And, and it worked out. And, and I, he was my sponsee for about 10 years and he moved out of the area. And, uh, then, uh, then I didn't, I lost track of him about 20 years ago. And during COVID, I was uh, at home and I hunted him up on the internet and I actually found a phone number and I called him up and he's still sober. And I was, and now that was the success story. Other sponsee that I knew when he was a teenager and he used to come hang around when we were working on vehicles and stuff. Uh, near the neighborhood. And then I met him in AA after he'd been sober a couple of years or no, he'd been sober a number of years. Anyway, I ended up being his sponsor at one point. And uh, then uh, we worked together for a while, maybe six months or a year. And at some point he ran into some serious lady friend problems and he committed suicide. He didn't get drunk. He shot himself. So Fortunately, what Ray told me about being his sponsor in the first place of the first person I was ever a sponsor still applied. So I don't feel like I'm responsible for him committing suicide or staying sober. No, that's between him and his God. And so I didn't feel like that was the end of the world when that happened. So that was the sponsor report. And I better hurry up. I got to, to wrap this up here. I got to. Uh, if, uh, what happened is uh, I stayed out there drinking for 30 years and I've been sober 33. That doesn't guarantee that I won't drink. It guarantees that I'm really old. And that's all that's for. So anyway, uh, so uh, a lot of stuff happened. Uh, after that first girlfriend, I got another girlfriend in the, in the program, a sober. I met her at the first meeting she came to. And uh, I didn't, I never was real good about following those instructions about not getting into a relationship in the first year. I read the book and it wasn't in there. So anyway, uh, so I didn't pay attention to that. And uh, that lady ended up being my wife. And uh, she died about nine years ago of lung cancer. She she struggled with quitting smoking. But uh, we were together about 20 years. And uh, so... uh, that uh, I didn't drink over that, and uh, I uh, managed to pull pull through that. And I was I was retired when we found out she had lung cancer. She had they told her she had six months to go, and I was re- I had just retired and uh, I was sober, so I got to be the home care person. She wanted to live at home in her house as long as she could. And so we had six months, and they were pretty accurate on how long it would take. And most of that six months went pretty well. We had uh, She was able to be home up until a week before she passed away, before she finally went in the hospital. And uh, she had ins- insisted earlier, when we knew this was coming, she said she didn't want to die at home. She wanted to go to the hospital. And I 
found that was a, you know, I, it seemed like if you wanted to stay to the end home, why not stay to the end? But I didn't question that. It was her request. And in fact, she called the ambulance for the last time in, that she went in. And uh, I found out by something that I had seen her, that uh, she had told one of her friends later why she wanted to not die at home in the hospital. She told her friend that she was afraid that I would be accused of not having taken good care of her if she died at home. So that was a reason for that. So that was a uh, interesting development that I had didn't see coming. So she was still trying to take care of me uh, in, in the end at the end there, and uh, I was so uh, I got to be sober for my parents. Uh, my dad was alive for ten years after I got sober, and my mom fifteen, and so I got to make that living amends, and that was uh, a big help to me. I I wasn't in a good frame of mind to be making amends the first year or two, but by the time I'd been sober for four or five, then I could go spend time with my dad and act like a sober person, not a brand new, newly sober person. And I was there and my mom was, she was there in a care, you know, care place for her last seven or eight years. I was able to go visit her regularly, which I would not have done if I'd been drinking. So that was a, a plus. And uh, my three siblings, my three sisters, after our parents, we, we stayed on decent terms over the years, but we, uh, after our parents passed away, we had occasion to do, uh, take care of some property in Oklahoma and uh, that we had trouble with the paperwork, getting it inherited, getting it, getting it transferred to us. So we took a road trip and drove there together and got it. We didn't get it fixed the first year. So we went back the next year. We had, we had so much fun doing those trips. We'd take two weeks in June and do it. We finally got the property transferred on the second year. We did that 13 years in a row. We'd take our June vacation, a road trip and our, our and sometimes only two or three of uh, usually three of us, Sometimes four of us would go. I used to call it our no spouses vacation. One time I couldn't go and my brother-in-law went. I called while they were on the trip and said, how's my stand-in doing? They said, he said, Howard can have this trip. <laughs> he, did not, he did not have as much fun with my three sisters as I did. Anyway, that's how good a terms we got to be on. And I could not imagine doing that. They're church ladies. They grew up in that. And they've never had drinking problems or anything. So I could not possibly have done that without if I was still drinking. Anyway, that's one of those little benefits. I am running out of time. It is time for me to call it good. I don't know if anybody got anything out of that. But uh, if you've been drinking for 30 years and sober 30 years, you don't run out of stuff to talk about. (laughs) I'm quitting. 